This is our third session on the motivation or the enabling or the empowering of these two almost impossible commands. They are humanly impossible. To do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant, more significant than yourselves. Count them worthy of your service. So always be a, a person serving others. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Always be on the lookout to act for the sake of the good, the interests of others. We are spending four sessions now. Part one was on contentment in Christ as a motivation or an enabling grace for seeking the good of others. Last time, we saw Christ's exaltation as a model for what our exaltation would be if we go low with Christ in service of others. And in this session, we look at the short-term loss that is necessarily involved in putting the interests of others before our own. We're going to lose something and the long-term gain. And I'm, I'm including here mainly passages that look as though they might contradict what I'm saying about being motivated by uh, gain, being exalted. So, Father, as we look at short-term loss and the long-term gain that's promised, show us, I pray, how this works in our hearts. We don't want to misuse your scripture in any way, so teach us from these texts, I pray. So remember now, we're trying to motivate the command to uh, look to the interests of others, the command to count others as more significant than ourselves. Let's go here to 1 Corinthians 13. Back in the King James, some of you may remember what it sounds like. This is about love, and it says love does not seek its own. Love seeks not its own in the King James, which sounds like if you're really loving others, you don't look for any kind of reward. Now let's read the context and see if there's any clues that that's not the case. If I give away all that I have, that's certainly a radical act of love. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, that's even more radical. But do not have love, oh my goodness, so you can give your body to be burned, and you can give away all that you have and still not have love. And he says, if you don't have love, these two acts gain nothing. Now, my point here is that's a bad argument if this text means it's wrong to want this gain. Does that make sense? He's arguing don't be a loveless, moralistic sacrificer of goods and life. Because if you try to love that way, you gain nothing. And he means for that to be a disincentive to live that way, right? Don't live that way. You gain nothing. So when you get here and he says, love seeks not its own, surely its own can't mean that. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love seeks not its own. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
So not, it seems to me that there are two arguments here. One is here, one is here, that the argument from gain shows that there is a proper gain, a proper hope, a proper reward that you can expect and long for and be motivated by when you give away all that you have and when you give your body to be burned. There's a resurrection coming. There's a reward on the other side when you lay up treasures in heaven. And here, there's a joy that love should have. It's it's not wrong for love to delight in the truth, to delight in what is right and good as it performs that kind of behavior. So I'm simply arguing that when we spot things like this in the New Testament, love seeks not its own, we must be very careful not to assume that this is an absolute statement. I would say seeks not its own immediate reward or seeks not its own material reward or seeks not its own um, private private reward. In other words, that doesn't include anybody else. I want, I want my reward and I don't care what happens to you. Love clearly does not love like that. Seeks not its own means seeks not its own immediate or seeks not its own material or seeks not its own private good at the expense of other people. Now, here's a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. He's talking about meat offered to idols, and you're free to eat them, but that doesn't always help other people. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, that sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 13. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. What kind of good is he not to seek? Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat. You can eat. You can, you can enjoy uh, your good here. Eat. Whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered as a sacrifice, then do not eat. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. The good that you have a right to do. All things are lawful. And so you have a right to eat here. You can eat. This is not going to be a contaminating thing for you to eat. But for love's sake... You will not seek your immediate, private, material good by enjoying this meat. You will deny yourself. So that's the idea when it says don't seek your own good. Seek the good of the neighbor. Same thing here at the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone, I try to please everyone in everything I do. In other words, I'm putting the interests of others before my own, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So this not seeking, not seeking is just like 1 Corinthians 13, 5. And I'm arguing not seeking my own advantage doesn't mean not seeking my own ultimate joy in their salvation, but rather not seeking my own immediate, material, private advantage. And you can see that, I think, 
when you look at what happens when he lives and gains the salvation of his brothers. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, when he succeeds in denying himself some immediate, material, private pleasure in order to bring salvation to others, they become his joy. It's not as though he gets no reward or wants no reward. He wants them saved because that is his joy. We watch it in action here, 2 Corinthians one twenty four. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. So he is after the joy of others. Now, why? For you stand firm in your faith, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. I want your joy. I don't want to bring more pain to you. Why? For if I cause you pain... Who is there to make me glad? So I don't want to cause you pain. I want to cause you joy because your joy is my joy. Your joy is my joy. So he denies himself privileges in order to find, in order to seek their joy work with you for your joy. I labor for your joy because when, you, when you're when you glad, then I'm glad because your joy is my joy. And then it flips around. Watch. But the one who, who, is, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I was sure, I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. <laughs> I love this. So Paul says, I don't want to lose my joy because my joy is your joy. So here he says, your joy is my joy. Here he says, my joy is your joy. And I think that's the description of what love looks like. Love makes huge sacrifices for the beloved because the joy of the beloved is our joy. Romans 15, 1 to 3. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, not to please ourselves. What does that mean? Again, I think it means not to seek our immediate or our private. You'll have to interpret that. <laughs> or material. There is a, a real self-denial in the Christian life, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. This is Philippians 2, 4, right? Please him, his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ, and here's the example, did not please himself, but as is written, the approaches of the the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, that's a good example because we know, in fact, from Hebrews 12 too, Christ did not please himself immediately, materially, privately, but oh, how he sought his joy, right? 
Hebrews 12, 2, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured all the immediate self-denial, all the horrors, all the shame, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So my point is that one of the enabling graces for seeking the good of others is that, yes, yes, it will be very costly. There will be many painful, difficult, short-term losses, and none of those passages in the Bible that call for that, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, none of them are a call for ultimate self-denial as though we were choosing hell in the path of love. We're not choosing hell. We're choosing heaven because those who lose their life gain their lives. There is long-term gain, and that gain is the grace that enables us to keep on suffering loss, to be a person, a two-for person who looks not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others.